It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche and spirit and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Today we'll be featuring On the Rise, a project of New Dimensions Radio, produced and hosted by Molly Rowan Leach and co-produced by Justine Willis-Toms. What if we lived in a world where everyone had enough? A world where everyone mattered and where people lived in harmony with nature? What if the solution to our economic, social, and ecological problems was right underneath our feet? Land has been sought after throughout human history. Even today, people struggle to get onto the property ladder and view real estate as an important way to build wealth. Yet the act of owning land and our urge to profit from it causes economic booms and busts, social and cultural decline, and environmental devastation. Today, we'll be exploring a new paradigm for a thriving world with our very special guest, Martin Adams. Martin Adams is a social innovator, systems thinker, and community organizer. He is director of Progress.org, a website of independent news and analysis on the economy, politics, and government policy. His interests center around the implementation of a new economic paradigm that might allow humanity to thrive in harmony with nature. He is the author of Land, A New Paradigm for a Thriving World, which introduces a radically new economic model that promises a sustainable and abundant world for all. To learn more about the work of Martin Adams, please visit Unitism. Join us for the next hour as we explore a radically new economic model that ensures a more fair and abundant reality for everyone with our special guest, Martin Adams. I'm Molly Rowan Leach. I'll be your host. Welcome to On the Rise. So Martin, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. I'd love to start out with um, something that you mentioned about your own personal experience as a child, um, how it pained you to see most people struggling while a few were living in opulence. Can you share with us about that? Yeah, I was born and raised in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong at the time was still a British colony. So you had a lot of that colonial mentality there, uh, basically white people were paid a lot more uh, than the Chinese people just for the difference in race, uh, which had nothing to do with their innate abilities. And I sensed that as a kid. Uh, I also sensed uh, somewhat glaring wealth inequality right from the start. And when you're a child, it, you ask yourself certain questions that I think most people have forgotten um, questions such as, 
why is it that some people have so much when the majority have so little? Uh, even though most everyone is doing hard work and performing valuable services, uh, why is it that a few can, can benefit so much from society while the majority are struggling? And, and these questions uh, just, you know, it didn't make sense to me. Uh, our existing reality just did not make sense to me. And so I sensed a certain disconnection between people, a certain lack of caring. And it always uh, really touched my heart f from an early age. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you were groomed for finance, of course, later on in, on your path um, and opted not to pursue a career on Wall Street. And I, I wonder if you could share with us more deeply about that journey. I went to business school and most of my classmates actually went on to work at Wall Street. And I remember walking, uh, walking in a career fair, uh, walking past the booths of co companies like J.P. Morgan, uh, Merrill Lynch, and so forth, Goldman Sachs, and and just I, I I just couldn't bring myself to to apply at those companies. A part of me just sensed already back then th that that kind of career would not fulfill me with any sort of deep meaning. Uh, and I just went my own way. I followed my heart and one thing led to another and it eventually led me to study economics on my own time because I realized that uh, economics is really a study of social welfare, what causes it and what, what causes uh, social decline as well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a moment ago um, as a child the, the question that I think you said we often forget as we grow older, and that is, why is it that um, some have so much and others have so little? And it reminds me of something that I came across my desk just yesterday, I believe, from Oxfam, that yeah. I, I believe it was 64 people. 62 people, actually. Okay. 62 individual human beings own as much as 50% of the entire wealth on this planet. I mean, you have to think about that statistic for a second. 62 individual human beings own as much as 307, no, sorry, 3.7 billion human beings. I mean, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. So when you were growing up, you must have experienced uh, situations and you likely had friends who were in immersed in that um, dichotomy? Yes. Do you have any any snapshots that you would like to share, unpack that um, you witnessed personally in yeah. your own youth? Well, um, my best friend, he his mother, a single mother, she was a school teacher, and um, she worked hard. She she really contributed uh, to our society, society and uh, she they never had a lot of money. Um, and, and quite, quite frankly, they had to live far away in an area where, where they didn't have, uh, where the cost of living was, was more affordable. Um, meanwhile, myself and my family, we were living in a well-to-do area, uh, just because we had had access to more resources. Um, and there were other friends, you know, I could notice these dichotomies, uh, 
there was a lot of um, poverty there in Hong Kong too that I noticed. Um, and I think that the largest concern that I felt is, um, is this dichotomy between human beings uh, just because of these differences in material resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, why would it be that someone had to, uh, you know, do some kind of menial work that they might not enjoy just because they had to earn a living uh, while other people could, you know, not work at all if they so chose. Um, and and just that just never made any sense to me. I, I believe I would like to live in a world where everyone can freely pursue their heart's passions uh, in such a way that, you know, makes this world a better place. Mm. I love the way you bring down to the layperson's level, to an ordinary person such as myself and probably so many of us who really know very little about economic systems, um, the eloquence that you bring to how it all works and to how we might understand it better, I think is, is so key. And one of the things when we were discussing pre-conversation today um, about that is, is the fact that economics seems to take us out, or at least the, the current economics, um, maybe the Western model, uh, if, if you will, takes us away from one another, as you're mm-hmm. describing it. You were just describing a certain sense of, of not being liberated um, in order to perhaps pursue your highest purpose. Yeah. And I wonder what that, what does that mean to you? How does economics um, both isolate us, perhaps even in its very structure, as well as what, what else does it do to us, even though we seem to live in a free society? Mm-hmm. Well, first, let me share that. I believe economics, the science of economics, doesn't have to be complex. In fact, uh, economics can actually be quite simple. You just have to break it down in such a way that most people can understand it's really just the science of how human beings interact with each other and who gets what and why. One of the greatest gifts I think that economists can can give to lay people is to make the science of economics accessible. Because uh, really it's just, it's just down to earth uh, who gets what and why. And yeah. Um, and so your other question about why is it that um, economics can interfere with our sense of well-being? To that, I would respond that we are living in a reality today where we have to pay other human beings just to exist on this planet. I mean, imagine having to pay for the air that you breathe. It, it, it's It's a ludicrous thought, and yet that's the reality we have today when it comes to land. I'm not even talking about buying food to support yourself. I'm just talking about existing on this very planet. We have to pay other human beings for the land that we're standing on. And as long as that remains an ongoing reality for the majority of human beings today, it cannot, our economic system will forever cause uh, wealth inequality at a core level. Mm-hmm. 
I'd like to go for a moment to a mutual friend and colleague of ours, um, Charles Eisenstein, who I admire very deeply, his work around sacred economics and um, his systems thinking. And he writes that you bring great clarity and care in your work, taking economics to its proper foundation, the earth itself, the land, and all that comes from it. Can you share a bit about your take on what he means by that? Charles, um, he summarized a principle very eloquently. He, he said, you know, to the natives, to the indigenous people, land is sacred. It's, it's our mother. Um, and where the sacrilege has come in is when we uh, first converted nature into property and then converted this property into money. And uh, so he understands on a very deep level that what this work is based on, what this book is based on, uh, which is that really all wealth comes from land. Mm. I'm here with Martin Adams, author of Land, A New Paradigm for a Thriving World, and executive director of Progress.org. If you'd like to learn more about the work of Martin Adams, you may go to unitism.com. That's U-N-I-T-I-S-M dot com. I'm Molly Rowan Leach. You're listening to On the Rise, a project of New Dimensions. here with Martin Adams, author of Land, A New Paradigm for a Thriving World. Martin, could you help us understand what the deeper roots of wealth inequality are and how it is that the individual is affected by this? What does that imply? Well, first of all, let me share that by wealth inequality, I don't mean a natural wealth inequality, the kind that's due to differences in human abilities or talents. I mean the kind of wealth inequality, wealth inequality that's created due to unfair social and economic circumstances. And like I touched upon earlier, uh, we all need land, just like we need air to breathe. And as long as some people have to pay other people for the land that they're standing on, you know, simply to exist on this planet, uh, we'll have a profound... Uh, wealth inequality wealth inequality that's really created because human beings have been marginalized from their birthright, which is uh, this earth and the gifts of this beautiful planet. Mm. And 
and uh, I will talk more about this in this show how how that looks in practice how that uh, how that actually affects us in practice before we dive in even more deeply into some of these um, principles that you share so so carefully and eloquently that help us understand how we might make it, uh, how we might shift the system together. Let's go back to the principle of that land is a basic human right. And um, I'd like to ask you what your thoughts are on critics who might say, well, you know, if you're, if you're lazy and you're not contributing to society, then you don't deserve to have a piece of land and um, that's just the way the system is. You know, if you're saying that it's unfair, um, that's just the way it works. What, what do you, how do you respond to that kind of criticism? You know, people that think that way, um, I would imagine that they might think differently if, they themselves, for example, have been injured on the job or, you know, injured in life or maybe if they're disabled and they can't provide for themselves despite their best intentions. I wonder if, if they might have a different opinion. Uh, for me personally, there is an innate dignity in each human being that can't be tarnished. It can't mm. be touched. And mm-hmm. that dignity is a right uh it's a fundamental human right to exist it's this this right that says you you were born here on this planet and you have a right to be here and we welcome you to the table Mm. Uh, you don't have to pay another human being for the permission of being alive see to me that's the fundamental injustice this belief that you have to work and therefore pay other or, or, or pay and therefore work other uh, pay to other human beings for the right to exist that's that's not what this is about what life mm-hmm. is about is about existing free from from the constraints of of mm-hmm. paying other human beings and, uh, and connecting slavery. and serving, right? As exactly. you and I have been discussing. Exactly. Co- co- connecting with others and serving the, the collective. Once people uh, are, are freed from the, the constraints of uh, unfair bondage, uh, usually what people tend to do is they, they tend to thrive and, and give back. That's a, mm-hmm. a natural human response to freedom. And the more free human beings are, the more they contribute or tend to contribute to the well-being of the whole. Um, and therefore, it's, it's really important that human beings are given as much uh, freedom and, and support uh, as possible from, from the social structure that they're living in. Why is it so important to understand the effectiveness, the effect, excuse me, the effectiveness or lack thereof of the minimum wage? Minimum wage is a very popular concept um, in our current economic system for good reason. Our current economic system uh, actually drives down wages 
uh, to essentially starvation uh, levels. If we did not have a minimum wage, uh, employers could could charge uh, or could could only pay starvation wages to their employees uh, because that's how our, our current economic system works. So, so having minimum wage laws in our current economic system is very important. I would say even having living wage laws. Um, however, we should remember that the economic system itself is fragmented and that an adjustment to the minimum wage is not really going to solve the deep-seated economic issues uh, that this country is facing, for example. A small businesses, uh, many small businesses struggle financially and even might be unable to pay higher wages uh, since they're already paying f- uh, high rents and, and high taxes. Uh, so minimum wages are important, but they have side effects uh, that uh, will affect um, other, other entities like small businesses. So the approach that I take is, hang on a minute, let's take a step back and ask ourselves, why do we need minimum wages in the first place? If this economic system we're living in causes uh, this need for minimum wages, why not change the economic system itself? And here's the rub. It's because of our system of land ownership that wages actually fall to the bottom. If we change the system of land ownership, wages will naturally increase. And so this is how it works. Uh, I can go more into greater detail later on, but if less money is tied up in land, in in the value of land, um, if less money is privatized in in land values, what essentially essentially occurs is that more of the money in the economy would be used to invest in productive businesses and startups and so forth. And one of the consequences of that is that employers will suddenly have to compete for workers instead of what we have today, which is workers competing for jobs. And once you have jobs and employers competing for workers instead of workers competing for employment, employers will have to pay workers a lot more money to retain them. And wages will therefore naturally increase across the board. So this is just a brief sketch about what happens if you change the system of land ownership uh, once you fix the land issue, the broken institution of land ownership, you essentially don't need minimum wage laws anymore because wages will naturally increase, benefiting everyone within human society. And for this, we actually have anecdotal evidence. Uh, let me give you an example. In the 19th century in frontier towns in the American West, uh, when land has not yet been widely monopolized, wages were naturally high. I've heard reports that in San Francisco in the 1800s, cooks uh, were paid like $900 a month, which at that time was a fortune. I'm not sure, like might've been $6,000 a month, something like this in today's money. Not sure, but it was definitely a fortune. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to, to hear from you about the gap on this topic. I know we're gonna go into universal basic income a little bit more as we move on in our conversation. But the gap between what people are bringing in and what it actually costs to live, um, it feels like a train that has taken off and is a runaway train. The cost of living and what's coming in is not even close to keeping right. up with what's going, what's expected to go out. What, right. what can you share about that? What does it mean to you? As a brilliant economist. 
Well, I'm not brilliant, um, but I have some <laughs> thoughts about that. <laughs> um, I have deep respect it, for your work. I guess it depends on the moment which uh, in which you catch me in. Um, I would say, <laughs> I would say that the reason why there's such a big difference between uh, the cost of living and and the money that's coming in is because the majority of our current economic activities are, at least in the United States, um, it could be the majority or close to the majority, those activities are geared to not actually create value for society, but to extract income from the economy. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that. Uh, when you provide a good or a service, um, you add value to the economy. If you're a small business owner, if you're an employee, if you're an independent contractor, you add something productive, something good to the economy, and you get paid for it. And that's a wonderful thing. If you're an artist, if you're uh, uh, you know, a radio show host, uh, different people produce and create different things, and they all add value to the economy. But then there are activities that extract income incomes from the economy. And the more people engage in those kind of activities, the less money is actually left over to pay people for what they produce and for what they add to the economy. So in the United States, we have a huge uh, financial industry. We have some Wall Street banks that are just, I think I've, I've seen a figure, they have like 40% of the GDP of the economy. And, and those huge industries do not add a corresponding value to the economy in, in, in proportion to, to the money that they receive. A lot of Wall Street banks are engaged in the mortgage business, and mortgages are essentially loans for land. But you see, we still have the same, same amount of land in the United States as we've always had. Land has not increased uh, in 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 quantity, right? When you when you invest in land, you don't produce more land. It's the same amount of land as before. So the more people, the more industries engage in in the mortgage business, and the more they extract, the more money they extract uh, through mortgages, uh, the less money is left over to pay people for the goods and services. And that's why we essentially we have such a big difference now between what people make through their income and what they have to pay, especially uh, in the form of interest on mortgages and rent on land. Martin, why do people tend to think that we truly have a free market? We actually don't, especially when it comes to real estate. Real estate is what it's called an entry monopoly. Uh, land is naturally scarce for each location since supply cannot be increased. So if people want to become landowners, property owners, they have to buy land from someone who already owns land. You, you can't make more land. And because you cannot produce more land, uh, it's actually not a free market, uh, such as cars or computers. You, you have a free market in cars or in computers because you can make more cars or computers. This is not the case in land. And because there's only so much land, the market in real estate is actually not a free market. So we will hold that thought because this is a very important concept that we'll continue to explore 
We are speaking right now with Martin Adams, who is the author of Land, A New Paradigm for a Thriving World. He's also the executive director of Progress.org. I'm Molly Rowan Leach, and you are listening to On the Rise, a project of New Dimensions Radio. I'm here with Martin Adams, author of Land, A New Paradigm for a Thriving World, and he's also executive director of Progress.org. Martin, let's talk about what crony capitalism means. Uh, You essentially get crony capitalism when a huge portion of the economy is geared to making money without adding a corresponding value to society. Uh, Take Wall Street, for example. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, whenever Wall Street banks provide financing for mortgages, they don't finance productive enterprise. Instead, people end up paying Wall Street banks for the right to use land, even though that land has always been a part of the local community, um, regardless of Wall Street's money. So the net effect of paying money for mortgages is that hard-earned money is sucked out of the local economy and wired to Wall Street on a monthly basis. Meanwhile, we still have the same amount of land in the local community as before. And that's why our current system of land ownership essentially impoverishes local communities. Mm. You also talk quite a bit about meritocracy. And I wonder if you could share what that means. Yeah. A meritocracy is the name for an economic system that financially rewards each person in direct proportion to the value that he or she provides. Uh, Clearly, we're not living in a meritocracy, despite maybe despite the mainstream story that says that capitalism Mm -hmm. is a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are plenty of people out there who add tremendous value to society while barely making a dime. School teachers, for example, mm-hmm. while exactly. some people make millions, like bankers, that don't necessarily add a corresponding value to society. Uh, you see, there are two ways we can make an income. We can either make an income by contributing to society, or we can make an income by extracting an income from society. And like I said earlier, generally speaking, when you make an income from real estate, for example, by flipping houses, you extract an income from society without adding a corresponding value to society because you still have the same, the same amount of real estate as before. Uh, no new land has been added to the economy. Mm. Why is economic rent such an important concept as well? I mean, we're, we're in the middle of talking about these important principles and I wonder why it's so important for us to understand Um, in order to see how things are currently operating, the concept Mm. of economic rent? Mm. Well, the term economic rent in economics is used to describe unproductive and unearned income. It's both unproductive and unearned 
um, because the economy, when you make that money, it's the economy still has the same number of goods and services that it has had before. When real estate increases in value, it's not actually the house that goes up in value. Um, after all, the houses just get old with use. It's the land underneath the houses that increases in value. And the only reason that land increases in value is because people wish to live closer together in their local communities. And so land becomes scarce and therefore more expensive. Mm -hmm. But since nobody has made that land, any money that can be had from land is both unproductive and unearned. Um, it's essentially economic rent. Uh, ancient people, of course, they knew that all wealth ultimately comes from land, from nature. And so the, the term land rent, which is a subset of the term economic rent, is really nothing but a fancy technical term to describe this ancient wisdom. Martin, I live in a beautiful small town in the heart of Colorado by a river and by these beautiful majestic 14ers. Um, I'm surrounded by them. And it would be probably considered a resort town. Now, I witness a lot of things on the ground here around rents, around property values, and the inequity, certainly, and, and certainly not um, pointing fingers at those who own the land even. How can we better address what we're doing and how to reverse what we're doing in order to come back to the, the value of, that everyone deserves shelter that, yeah. and, and how incomprehensibly impossible it is for so many of us at this point. Yeah. I think you point, something, point out something very important, which this is not about finger pointing. This is not about you know, saying you're bad or you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. This is about just realizing that the system we've created does not work. And so what can we do to make it work for everyone? Um, people say that we have a homeownership society. We actually don't. We have a debt slavery society in which even the majority of homeowners have become enslaved to financial institutions through mortgages. Right. So the majority of renters and homeowners are essentially paying money for land to some faraway Wall Street bank. Essentially, what I'm proposing is to give the land back to the people. If you mm -hmm. are born here on earth, which is all of us, you have a right to be here free of charge. And essentially what that looks like in practice, as long as we have money in our current economy, is that this means that land has to be rented from the local community, not privately owned. That rent is then repaid to you as a member of the community in the form of community services or basic income. And the reason this has to be done this way is because the rental value of land is an accurate measure of the value that you receive from living in a certain location. Let me ask you to, let's follow the money, okay? Think of a family or a friend that you know that is currently renting, for example, and they're in the low-income category. Share with us how that, would, how, how that system would be reshaped. Yeah. And specifically how 
those funds would be repooled while, you know, still honoring the fact um, that, that the homeowners have that same basic human right that we all yeah. do, yeah. right? So, first of all, we live in an, in an economy where we are taxed on our labor. What mm -hmm. this means is that the poor and the middle class are he quite heavily taxed on what they produce. And so they don't get to see all of the value of what they are putting out. Um, so what I'm proposing is really, you don't need to tax uh, people because once you collect the value of land for the benefit of the community, for the benefit of the entire society, you can use that land value as an income source and replace all taxation. And the effect of that is, and, and this works out mathematically, by the way, there is enough money in land to substitute all the income that's currently being, uh, all the public revenue that's currently being made uh, through taxes. And so if we did that, the effect of that would be that uh, people would have a lot more money in their pockets because things would cost less and they would also make a lot more money through their work. And essentially what would happen is that people would have so much money that they could easily afford uh, paying, uh, paying a rent on the land that, that, that they're living in uh, to their local community. Now, you say that, um, I think, I, I'm just remembering from what I've read of your writing uh, from land, you, you share um, that a rent goes to the, the property owner and it extracts, right? Is that correct? From society because it doesn't come back in in any way. Now, how, how is that equation solved with your model? Currently, most of the rent that's being paid for land is extracted from the local community mm -hmm. and sent to, again, Wall Street banks, right? Uh, in the form of interest on mortgages, either Wall Street banks or to uh, property sellers. So if someone buys, let's, let's just take a practical example. Someone buys a piece of property in a small village, you know, sits on it, waits for 10 years, and then sells it for a lot more money 10 years down the road, not because he or she has made any improvements to the property, but just because the value of that land and that location has become more expensive. And so that person can take that extra money and retire, say, in Barbados, right? And meanwhile, the new homeowner or the new person that's renting that house will have to, or let's, let's just stay with a homeowner, the new homeowner will have to take up a mortgage, right, from a bank to be able to live in that location. And so on the one hand, you have this one wealthy landlord who's now retired in Barbados and you have this Wall Street bank that's now making money from this property that the new homeowner had, had to take a mortgage out on. Meanwhile, the, the, home, the new homeowner has to work really, really hard to be able to afford the interest payments and the principal payments on that mortgage. And now that new homeowner might choose to rent out his home. And so the rent that the new homeowner is making from this home, he too will have to pay to the Wall Street bank to pay off the mortgage. In other words, what I'm saying is, it doesn't matter if you're a homeowner or a tenant, 
in our current system, the more expensive land becomes, the more beholden we become to Wall Street banks mm-hmm. uh, just to be able to afford living in a certain location. What I'm proposing is take the banks out of the picture and start paying that rent to yourself, uh, to your own community. And then that mm-hmm. community can pay you back through services and through basic income. And that will definitely allow you to uh, live in that community free of financial worry and free of any sense of uh, having to work just to be able to afford living in that community. Say a few few words so that we have a better understanding of the system of universal basic income. Uh, Universal basic income uh, is a periodic cash payment to every member of a community, regardless of income status or deservedness, quote-unquote deservedness. Um, Really, a basic income is a compensation payment, not a handout. um, Because, well, let me explain. If we take the idea that the gifts of this earth belong to all, then the value of nature needs to be equitably shared with all people. Um, A practical example, which is a very good example, is Alaska. Right now, every resident of Alaska receives a basic income of about $1,000 per year from the value of Alaskan oil. So this means that nobody had to sacrifice or pay extra money to so that Alaskan residents could receive the $1,000. See, this basic income does not come from the hard work of other people. This basic income is financed uh, purely from the value of nature. Hmm. I am here with Martin Adams, who is the author of Land, A New Paradigm for a Thriving World. I'm Molly Rowan Leach. You're listening to On the Rise, a project of New Dimensions Radio. with Martin Adams, author of Land, A New Paradigm for a Thriving World. And he's also the executive director of Progress.org. Martin, how have you seen people begin to apply this model in our immediate communities? Please share with us any stories of how people are activating the principles we've been sharing about today. In the 1980s, uh, current presidential contender Bernie Sanders actually founded the Burlington Community Land Trust 
today it's the Champlain Housing Trust. And about 7.6% of uh, the land that's in the city of Burlington, Vermont, is owned by the Champlain Housing Trust. Uh, having homes within a community land trust is, is tremendously beneficial for homeowners, for the overall economy, uh, as well as for um, the, the quality of life. Um, a study by the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy showed that homeowners within the land, within the land trust were 10 times less likely to default on their homes than their private market counterparts. Um, being within, uh, existing within a community land trust is, uh, it, it creates a stabilizing force and that it, it also adds uh, to community coherence. Hmm. Well, it, certainly we are living in such tumultuous and fearful times and causing a, a great many of us to feel that the Goliath of profit and greed has already gone too far. And I'm wondering, what, what can you share with us that might offer hope that there is a transformative side to this shadow time? Well, fortunately um, and unfortunately, the system that we're living in is self-regulating. What I mean by that is that the current economic system will, given enough time, experience another economic crash, which will naturally temper a lot of the greed uh, that's currently in, the, uh, in society. It will also bring a lot more suffering, however. Uh, the next economic crash, I believe, will surpass the last crash that we had in 2008 in severity. Um, Dr. Fred Foldvery is an economist at San Jose State University, and he actually predicted uh, in, in 1997 that we would have an economic crash in 2008. So that was 11 years before it happened. And he, he was able to, to make that prediction because he understood that real estate speculation is a cause of economic depressions. And so when you talk about these tumultuous and fearful times, I often think of um, the fact that we're living in a system that, that is self-regulating. And as long as we choose collectively to, to continue the system, um, we will naturally experience the consequences of living in the system. And so like having a fever will make you feel ill, it will also, this system will also allow us to reflect um, on an ongoing basis uh, with each economic crash, whether or not we want to continue the system that we're living in. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Fred Folveri, I just want to mention this also, he actually believes that the next economic crash may happen around 2024 or 2026, because that's when the, when the real estate cycle will reach its next peak. Um, and, and when real estate becomes too expensive, it actually then causes a contraction in the economy, mm -hmm. which, which then leads to an economic uh, bust. I'd like to go back for a moment to what, what you shared at the top of this segment and uh, regarding Bernie Sanders and the land trust in um, tell me the name again, his land it's, trust that he... Uh, 
It used to be the Burlington Community Land Trust, mm-hmm. and today it's known as the Champlain Housing Trust. Okay. Now, many of us are at a point where we feel like we can't take it anymore as far as it's just too much, too much going out and not enough coming in, and it doesn't seem to make sense to be disconnected and isolated in mm. a society that seems to be steamrolling our Mother Earth. And so Mm. when we've been conversing, Martin, I've been thinking quite a bit, actually, about the life of Peace Pilgrim. Yeah, wonderful. Peace Pilgrim, as many people know, was uh, originally someone who walked the path of the typical American, you know, uh, white picket fence, had a family, had all the material possessions and kind of basic comforts and, and so on. And she had an epiphany uh, and realized that this wasn't what it was about and that her path of service was to shed all of it, really, literally. She even left her family in order to walk. It, essentially, she, she had that epiphany and realized that it was time to uh, serve and that none of these material things uh, mattered. And I think the point that I'm getting at is how, how can we have that moment of understanding for ourselves that we don't have to play this game any longer, but not completely revert to, and I'm not saying revert in a, in a negative way, but but completely go to a sense of an ascetic life either. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. Confucius say, the middle path, right? Right. And so in these times, how can we live within this system and still feel a sense of changing it while we're in it? Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned Bernie, but can, can you share with us some other very practical examples, some tangible ones of people you know yourself included, <laughs> that might be, um, you know, obviously living within this system, but also changing it minute by minute, day by day. Hmm. Well, I first want to say, you mentioned the example of Peace Program, and, and she took it, you know, to, she did what was right for her, which is right. she for, forsook all of her possessions and lived as a penniless pilgrim. Uh, that's not the reality for most of us. You know, for me, speaking uh, personally, I like having a roof over my head. I like having a computer and a car and all those things. And so we have to be realistic with what works for each of us. Um, that said, it's always good to ask yourself the deeper question. Do, do I really need all this material stuff? Do I mm-hmm. need this, this, you know, five house of do I need two, two, three houses? Um, and so personally, I realized I don't need that much as long as I have a house, a roof over my head and my basic needs are met. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, I think people can just give back in whatever way works for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a founding member of a community land trust here in this area. And so what I did, you know, that was just uh, real for me, was I contributed some equity into 
making sure that we have a living living example here in this local community. So that's going to take some time to build and create. Uh, so I don't want to talk too much about it at this point, but um, I think as long as each person starts where they're at and gives what they can in a way that they themselves feel taken care of, I think I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Mm, thank you. And looking ahead for a moment, let's let's just think about um, the future and what would your wish be, or your, or your thoughts around how your work might carry forth. Hmm. Martin Luther King. Uh, he once said, um, compassion, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It understands that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And to me, that's a wonderful quote because he correctly pointed out that we need to change the economic system that we're living in. Uh, one of my greatest hopes would be that we as a society will start to ask ourselves some really important questions, which is, which goes beyond uh, trying to fix or tweak the system uh, to actually asking ourselves, well, does the system we're living in work? Or if it doesn't, can we create a new system? Can we create a new system that works for everyone? And then the other question is, or the other realization that I would like to share is that as long as we're living in a system that doesn't work for everyone, I truly believe that we're living in a system that doesn't really work for anyone, including the wealthy. Uh, I think the wealthy people in this country have to realize that we're all in this together and that they too would be much better served if they, if Everyone lives in a system that takes care of everyone, not in a leachy way, but in a way that allows everyone to thrive and be productive and contribute to the economy. I've been speaking with Martin Adams, author of Land, A New Paradigm for a Thriving World, and executive director of Progress.org. If you'd like to learn more about the work of Martin Adams, you may go to unitism.com. And while there, check out a Creative Commons online edition of his recent book, Land, as well as links to Martin's many blogs and articles. I'm Molly Rowan Leach. You've been listening to On the Rise, a project of New Dimensions Radio. This is program number 3571. You've been listening to On the Rise, a project of New Dimensions Radio, produced and hosted by Molly Rowan Leach and co-produced by Justine Willis-Toms. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio and Media in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can find nearly a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our archive and many other resources. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, 
science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drazen. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer, supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, and thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, to become a member of Friends of New Dimensions, or to purchase downloadable copies of this and many other New Dimensions programs, visit our website, newdimensions.org. Or you can reach us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.